At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Good morning. Welcome to SawCast number 26. This production of SawCast is brought to you courtesy of Jocko Willing Productions, his technical staff, and Saw Chronicles. My name is John Stryker-Meyer. I'll be your host today. Thank you for joining us. As this gunship was making a gun run, firing at the enemy, we were looking straight down. There were so many soldiers. As we were making the gun run, Covey said, Hair lead, you are on fire. Hearing that, I looked out of the helicopter and looked back at the engine. And sure enough, flames were coming out of the exhaust. I don't know how we were able to stay in the air as long as we had, but that was quickly coming to an end. We continued firing and shooting. Everything we had at the NVA in the open area until we were just above a patch of bamboo trees. I was knocked unconscious from the impact of the crash, but only for a few moments. I took my flight helmet off and stepped out of the helicopter to check our surroundings. I was hurting all over. My head was pounding, probably from the bullet that hit my helmet and likely from me slamming against the back of the co-pilot seat when I crashed. I felt a little wobbly but was able to shake it off after a few moments. This is a brief segment from a recently released book, We Saved Sog Souls by Roger Lockshear. Today we're joined by Roger. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Thank you. It's and, good to be uh, here. We have to set a little bit of context here. At this, you had went to Vietnam with the 101st Airborne. Correct. At the near the end of 1967. That's correct. I went and part of an advanced party. Indeed, and uh, so the uh, you got there in time for the worst year of SOG during the eight-year history of SOG. 1968 was by far. The heaviest in terms of casualties, 
changing tactics, more uh, particularly from the aviator's perspective, much more anti-aircraft that you all had the anti-aircraft weaponry that as you're flying in to pull teams out that you had to deal with as well as a very tenacious enemy on the ground. And uh, um, this book is excellent. And again, I recommend it that anybody run out and get a copy because this is unique. Uh, a lot of the books we've had from SOG, from our SOG guys, and men that run missions on the ground, at some point they say, the helicopters came in and pulls out. Gunships made a gun run. Well, in this case, the, gay th- the great thing about this book is this was what it was like on the other side. Hmm. And I think that the uh, road ahead perspective that we had to get here, this book is compelling. Uh, it's got great stories in it. And we'll only get a few into them today. But there's a couple of critical moments in time. But on this particular target, um, this sounded like your premier mission in terms of your one-year tour of duty in Vietnam, this was the one that stuck with you. And even until, what, twenty the year 2020, there was a couple of questions that weren't answered, like, who saved our ass? <laughs> Correct. But these little things that unfold over time. So um, um, I wanted to get back to this book, because in this case here, um, for SOG, it was an eight-year secret war and uh, went from 64 to 72. And the recon teams ran missions across the fence. Special Forces led. And we had aviation units, the 101st and many others that supported us. But in your case, it was unique because the 101st was assigned up north to I-Corps. And after your first few months in country, even there, you had some unique experiences Um and you worked with special forces in the traditional camp, and then you came to SOG, which was another echelon of uh, <laughs> hair-raising experiences. But um, for this mission here, um, this was the target. You were supporting a team. This was the Tim Schaaf-led team? Correct. So talk a little bit about Tim, because by this time you got the – this was uh, September? This was September, right. late, late September, 1968. And so this is during the monsoon season, because I remember our team did run missions then, but Tim was able to get on the ground. And so he was on the ground, supposed to be a three-day mission, and the gunship, maybe if you could also explain uh, another detail in your book that I really appreciate was when a recon team would be inserted, how the gunships, you guys, would support them. And of course... The this was the hogs then what we called hogs which was a gunship, all they had was guns and bullets, and and any re- weapons like the two point seven seven five rockets maybe a forty mic mic mm-hmm. and maybe a minigun later on, mm-hmm. and uh, so that would support the slick that would be carrying the troops in. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Then we'll get back to this mission because I just thought that was fascinating. Yeah, well, um, the gunship that I had during this mission, during this point in time, was, as you say, a, it was a hog. <laughs> Others called it a pig because of the 40-millimeter nose cannon. Right. Um, and we also carried two 19-shot rocket pods uh, and then our, our door guns. And for, for SOG, we ran 
1,800 rounds per door gun, uh, which far exceeded anything that was done in country in Vietnam with gunships. Um, we also, when we acquired our hog, um, I had the um, the 40 millimeter ammo uh, container increased in size to carry more 40 millimeter because again um, there was no uh, returning to rearm and and re- rearm and refuel and go back to the to the teams. So we had to carry as much as we possibly could carry ammunition wise out onto a mission, and that was our hog. Uh, our hog also at the time they were called uh, aerial artillery platforms, right? <laughs> which was kind of cool. It's, I mean, because it really was. I mean, it was so much being carried on on that that, oh, yeah. that gunship. It was just. Uh, I'm I'm not sure that it was the best choice for SOG missions because um, it had this heavy ordnance. But it didn't have the mini guns that could put down suppressing fire so over such a wide area. I mean, the rockets were straight on. Right. Um, the the pooper, the forty <laughs> millimeter, which is called a pooper, it had that sound poop 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 poop, and, and that's um, a grenade launcher just for, for it, it, our yes, it's a grenade it's launcher. It carried round, the which... same round linked, the same as a M seventy nine. But these are linked. To, it was a chain gun, and uh, which was incredible. Had incredible firepower. But again, it was um, you know I, I'm not so I'm not sure in hindsight, which is always 2020, if it was the best <laughs> choice for uh, for right. missions like these. But it was what it was, and it had tremendous power. Like it was your hog. Like, I remember with the Marines with Scarface, mm-hmm. and even the 176, the muskets. There were times when they were loaded that the door gunners would get out <laughs> and, and kind of like push the helicopter <laughs> just to get enough movement before they jumped in to try to get it moving, get it off the ground. Was your hog that loaded or did you have to do? Our, our hog was overloaded. <laughs> it, it was overloaded, but I, I do believe that um, the 101st at the time, RC models, um, they they – uh, their engines were upped. The power source was a little higher. Better than the they had the B models, for example. Definitely, yeah, okay. definitely had more horsepower, and the the blades were all the rotor blades were also slightly wider to to get a little more lift. So, oh, is that right? We, it was impossible for us to do vertical takeoff. We couldn't do that. No, no. You know, we we just had to nose forward and drag the the <laughs> the points of the of the skid, the toes of the skid along along the ground, uh, and get get a running start. Right. And again, this is the UE that whenever you think of the Vietnam War, this is the aircraft from the war that brought the air mobility factor into it. Mm-hmm. And of course, we had the slicks we all think about, but here for today and you and your mission. We're going to focus on the gunships. And so I want to get back to that day because in this mission, Tim Schaaf and his team were put in. They were supposed to be for three days. They've been on the ground now for seven or eight days. They finally get the team out. And you had a, a good description of how at one point, you, as a gunship's coming by making a gun run, shooting at the enemy who's shooting at you and the team, you look down, you can see Tim Schaaf throwing the brew which is the Montagnards team members on the helicopter and then the slick finally took off 
And then uh, during that one gun run, that's when your helicopter, the Black Angel, gets hit really hard and it crashes. Mm -hmm. And so by any ordinary standards, just the first part of that day, supporting the team and getting shot down. But for you personally, that drama kind of picked up a little bit. This is the beginning of uh, your day in hell. It, <laughs> and literally, you're on the ground. It, it was. I mean, we, we successfully got the team off the ground, but now we kind of swapped places, and we, <laughs> and we were on the ground, and it didn't look like there was going to be anybody to get us out. Right. Um, <laughs> actually, uh, you know, on that, on that mission, um, the, it was the second pass on the LZ, that we took the most devastating amount of hits and, and fired to our aircraft. Um, our first pass to the LZ, the slick uh, aborted the mission. Right. And um, in the process, we were leading that slick in, and we were taking a tremendous amount of fire. Tim Schaff and his team was under heavy fire. I mean, they were just fighting for their lives on the LZ. And we slowed down our gun run uh, in order to allow the, the slick time to get the team. But at the last moment, the slick pilot, he was somewhat of a newbie, uh, panicked, and he pulled. He pulled up and left the team. So let me, let me intervene because you covered this so well. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind, because your pilot's name was Whitman. Yes. And he had been in Special Forces before becoming a 101st Airborne Aviator. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> um, Mr. Whitman came on the radio after the slick pulled out. And he said, what the hell just happened? The inexperienced pilot simply said he aborted because he was afraid that he was going to get shot down. Tim Schaff, who was the team leader of the 1-0, came up on the radio saying, if you don't get us out now, we will never get out. Mm -hmm. That's when Mr. Whitman famously stated to the slick pilot, if you don't go get the team now, I'll shoot you down myself. <laughs> And I do believe he. I do believe he was serious. I mean, we. Oh yeah. We had made uh, Jim Whitman, myself, Scott DeArmond, and Scott's predecessor. Uh, we had made a commitment to the teams uh, way back in May of 1968, down at FOB one, that uh, we, if we're going to be the team, the fire team supporting the the teams, the recon teams, that. We would never leave a team behind, and we took that very seriously. We 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 believed that when we put a team in, that was our team, and when it was time for the team to come out, it was our job to get them out, uh, regardless of what it took to do so, and that was just um, unheard of what the pilot did at the time. Not his fault. I I, I can understand. Oh, you know, yeah. I can. It was a horrible situation. However, um, we were there to get the team out, and we were going to do that. So we got. We took a lot of gunfire. We took a lot of hits on that first pass, and we should not have had to go in for a second pass. <laughs> <laughs> right, I forgot that part of it. Yeah, but you're right. But you know, again, in your book, you captured that feeling 
of what it was like. And uh, I want to go back to the book again. It was like the entire North Vietnamese army was shooting at us. This is during your actual mm. gun run in support of the team while the team is fighting the enemy and mm. getting members on the slick that landed. And um, I could also hear the distinct sounds of 12.7 millimeter heavy machine gun and also the thump, thump, thump of a 37 millimeter cannon coming at us from somewhere. We were now getting ripped apart from all the bullets hitting our gunship. I was out in the skids shooting nonstop, dropping as many NVA as I could. Scott was doing the same thing on his side. Somehow, it all seemed to be happening in slow motion. My M60 couldn't shoot fast enough to suppress the now hundreds of NVA trying to kill us. I could hear and feel the dozens of bullets hitting our helicopter. At one point while I was on the skid, I felt my head snap backwards. But with all the bullets hitting our helicopter and flying through the air, I didn't think anything about it. I just kept shooting at the NVA. (laughs) Oh, my God. And so for our viewers or listeners, Mm -hmm. you're standing on the skids so you're able to better fire and support. Right. And and your uh, fellow door gunner there, because mm-hmm. you're the crew chief. Mm-hmm. You're in charge of keeping the aircraft in mm-hmm. flight when you go back, refuel and all that. But you and he stand on the skid, and your M60s are flexible. So you're able right. to move them around to exactly where you want to bring fire. But just to see that, hundreds of NVA. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it it, it yeah, you know, it was it's kind of surreal, and uh, like I mentioned, everything started moving in slow motion. It yeah. was it was just everything. I mean, it's you could clearly, I could clearly see all the tracers. I could clearly see who I was shooting at, um, and it just seemed at that point in time, it seemed like we were seriously outgunned. <laughs> and, and, and and which we were, but um, but you just do what your your muscle memory tells you to do, and you just you just keep on fighting. As far as being out in the skids, um, in my mind, it was no more dangerous being out in a skid than it was to be sitting in your seat and firing because <laughs> that helicopter, it's paper thin. Oh, yeah. And, it, you know, for the for the crew chief and door gunner, there was no armor plating around us other than the body armor back plate that we sat on and our front, front plate and back plate. Um, but, you know, it was much better to be out on the skid. We could be far more effective and um, it just seemed like, you know, that was the obvious thing. It, and, and it worked. It had always, always worked. We were always able to overpower uh, our, our enemy regardless of, of what was going on. And, uh, th- but this time, <laughs> this time was a little different. I had never, ever seen on all the missions as many NVA as we saw that day. Uh, there were areas of, of sparse vegetation uh, and that we were just swarming. Sure. They were just swarming. And again, 
you're across the fence in layoffs, supporting mm-hmm. a team that had been on the ground for eight or nine days, mm-hmm. and they were out of time for rations. And then, of course, um, they were able to stay out of the enemy's uh, direct attention, we'll mm-hmm. say it that way, mm-hmm. until the last day when they were near the enemy and one of the little people coughed. Yes. We know that that feeling. And that began their time on the ground. But fortunately, the weather cleared enough because mm-hmm. this is at the end of September. The monsoons are in and out. Mm. And, and you guys had tried to get out there for several days but couldn't go. Couldn't make it. Couldn't so make finally, it. this is that day. You're finally out there to get the team out. You get shot down. And just for the record, the impact was so severe that – you noticed that your chain with your St. Christopher's medal on it was broken, and the Seiko watch you were wearing were just broken off of your body, literally. Mm-hmm. So to this day, you don't know where the chain went, but nope. you were able to find the Seiko watch and your and your medal. Yeah. yeah. And where were they? They were they were on the floor. They were on the floor <laughs> underneath. As you, you know, regain the- consciousness, this is what you find. Yes. <laughs> I never found I never found my brass bracelet that somehow got snapped off my wrist. That the Montyard bracelet, the yep. honorary one you had gained earlier in the year. Yeah, yeah, that was gone. I I I didn't couldn't find that. I wasn't looking for it, but right. but the watch and the Saint Christopher medal were right there, right there, you know, on the floor, visible. So I just grabbed them quickly and stuffed them in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, um, as you as at that point, as you regain consciousness and Scott regain consciousness, you get back on your feet. Then you go into some of your SOPs, which on a crashed aircraft, it's kind of interesting what you had to go through. Mm-hmm. And uh, so some of the SOPs they had to go through in terms of the radios, getting your documents. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Whitman's gaining the maps and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you and Scott are doing what? Well, we had rehearsed this in the past because, um, again, we flew together. We always flew together, Mr. Whitman, Jim Whitman, Scott, and myself. Uh, they, we would swap out. Co-pilots would be different. Uh, but we, there were different things that we rehearsed because we, fl- we flew together so long. And one of the SOPs that we established was that in the event of a crash, Scott would go to the compartment. There's a small cargo compartment on his side of the aircraft, just behind the cabin, where there was a um, an a, uh, emergency kit. Right. And in that had various, you know, survival. It was survival kit, had various items. Um, I, uh, Mr. Whitman, would uh, collect the maps and papers, any documents uh, that were on, in his his control that he would take out on a mission, he would grab those. I would reach in from the co-pilot side and turn all the radio frequencies, zero everything out, um, and then I would go around, open up the avionics compartment, and shoot up as much of the avionics as I could to destroy to destroy them. Um, that was our our standard operating procedure for for a crash in uh, in Laos. Or right. North Vietnam, you know, and, and also, uh, you. I love the details here because in the book, I just got to go back to it again because the way you described it. Now you're you're now regaining consciousness. You're on mm-hmm. the ground, and then you and Scott are doing your thing with Mister Whitman, and then the gunship looked like a time bomb 
that might explode at any moment. The skids were totally sprung outward, and the bottom of the helicopter sat flat on the ground. I'd never seen a helicopter with so many bullet holes in it. Holes were everywhere, throughout the entire body, cabin, engine compartment, transmission area, tail boom, and elevators. The main rotor was full of holes and ripped apart in several places, as was the tail rotor, which is much smaller in the back. Of course, last but not least, the smell of JP4 fuel and hydraulic fluid hung heavy in the air, and the ground was wet from the leaking fuel cells. Then again, as a tribute to your pilot, Mr. Whitman, he was able to maintain control and keep the aircraft in a controlled auto-rotation mode. It was nothing more than a small miracle. And maybe if he just explain quickly what auto-rotation is, because obviously everything's been shot to shit on the helicopter. <laughs> You're in the air and auto-rotation kicks in, but he still has a little bit of control. Okay. The auto-rotation is basically landing without engine power. And which is a skill that that pilots have to work on to develop to be effectively uh, perform. And uh, that he did this under these conditions, um, if you pull just before crashing, just before hitting the ground, when you auto-rotate, the pilot has to pull full pitch on the blades, which essentially is going to stall out the aircraft. But it will be enough lift hopefully, to keep you from slamming into the ground. So, again, if the last detail, when you pull pitch, that means you're pulling the, which which of the two controls? The collective stick. The collective stick. You're pulling the collective stick. And the blades, and then the helicopter and comes away. You see a flaring, yes. what we call flare, yes. where the bottom kind of goes down. Yep. There and you if go. you do that too soon, <laughs> oh, yeah. you'll, you'll crash. You'll, you'll hit like a rock because you'll lose any kind of lift. And if you do it too late, then it's obviously totally ineffective. Uh, ineffective. So uh, he he was able to do that. He did that. Um, and again, we would practice auto rotations all the time. We would practice that. Um, oh, no kidding! All the time. We would we would practice that. I would. We probably practice that every couple of weeks. Um, and so it was something that was not new to him, and he just muscle memory, everything for everybody just kicked into gear. Except for for Mr. Chapman, our co-pilot. <laughs> our co-pilot. He was busy shitting his pants. For, for Mr. Chapman, <laughs> this was his first SOG no. mission. Yes, this was his very first. Welcome to SOG. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> so this uh, this was quite a uh, this was quite an experience for him and quite an eye opener as uh, welcome to SOG yeah and um, he took some shrapnel to his heel um, but other than that uh, it, you know not bad we took a thirty seven millimeter up through the bottom of the aircraft which hit his seat um, and that that lifted. Uh, but it didn't explode. But it didn't explode. And I think maybe it didn't explode because it didn't have enough time to set, to, to arm, activate. To activate because we were so close. Because we were low. at When we took that, um, Crawford, Dick Crawford, who was the medic in one of the Chase helicopters, yeah. 
one of the chase slicks. He said that our cr- aircraft looked like it hit a speed bump because it bounced. <laughs> that must have been it. That was it. Yeah, he said He said that was it. He oh. saw it. He saw it come up. <laughs> really? <laughs> and again, uh, on a mission like this, you have a primary slick that goes in for the team. In this case, they were going to have a second, but they decided to put everybody on the first helicopter just to get them out. Yes. And then you had a chase helicopter we would have an SF medic. In this case, it was Dick Crawford mm-hmm. out of Quezon or Mylock. Mm-hmm. And he was a veteran Green Beret medic. Mm-hmm. And he was there and saw your helicopter get hit by the 37 Mike. Well, actually, um, he was in the third slick. Right. Um, the first slick got shot down. The pilot was right. He was going. To, he feared he was going to get shot down. He did. And he did. He did. He got shot down. Um, <laughs> and um, and Crawford was in the third slick, who also had a newbie pilot to um, to SOG, to SOG missions. Oh. And he didn't. Ex- he was told that he's just going along for the ride. That he's just gonna, you know, hover yeah, just, at eight, nine thousand feet and watch with the goings on and get some experience and this and that. And all of a sudden, he was pulled into the fray. Right. Uh, and the reason why he got pulled into the fray, you guys are on the ground. Yeah. And you're, you, you again captured this experience about being on the ground so well. Um, you and Scott had set up a defensive position in front of the helicopter, both of your M60s. You right. still had rounds for them. Right. And then. We could hear their shout, they being the NVA, yep. as they headed in our direction. Our wingship made a low-level gun run on the advancing NVA that slowed them down temporarily. We could hear the NVA yelling and firing blindly in our direction. Some bullets were snapping overhead as they passed, and others were ripping through the bamboo and vegetation around us. The NVA were getting very close and their shooting was pretty much nonstop. Scott and I started firing long bursts from our M60s in their directions, and we could hear screams of agony as some of our bullets found their marks. Then suddenly the third chase slick that was hovering overhead had four McGuire rigs that were thrown down, and I could see large green tracers going past overhead as the NVA focused their 12.7 Mike Mike millimeters heavy machine gun on the newly arrived slick. So the ropes that come out have the McGuire rig. At that time, it was like a saddle, mm-hmm. and it had a handle in it. No. No handle in yours? No handle. No kidding. No handle. These these were the very, very <clears throat> first. first. Uh, they had no no handle. So you did have to hang on. You couldn't. It didn't have a wrist strap. Uh, it was just the rope with the seat. And the rope was, in your case, you rode 125 feet? Yes. Because sometimes we also had rope that was 150 feet. These were 125-foot ropes. And the reason why they had the ropes was that a helicopter couldn't land. Sometimes the vegetation would be too dense. They dropped the ropes. And then by the September of 68, they came out with a McGuire, which was like a thick piece of cloth that looped around to the top. And then you sat in it, and then you lifted out. Correct. And so here, they had four people on the ground, you, Scott, Whitman, and Mr. Chapman. And then um, at some point, 
they hadn't trained on using Swiss seats. No. <laughs> no, they hadn't trained on using a McGuire's. McGuire. Right. But, but uh, there were some complications in it. So at some point, <laughs> uh, what had explained why Dickey comes out of the helicopter? Well, um, he's in the chase ship now. He's in the chase ship. Um, he, you know, he's, he saw the crash, the violent crash. He didn't know what the condition of uh, the four crew members were. And um, so he, he jumped out of the uh, hovering slick, and he ended up on the ground with us. So now um, we didn't need a medic, but he didn't know that. He, he reacted he, out of impulse, out, yeah. of, out, again, out of training, um, and and he he thought he thought there was uh, help was needed. So you have five was people on the ground with so, four McGuire rigs. So now the only problem is, yeah, we have four McGuire four McGuire rigs and five people, and uh, so uh, he helped Mr. Whitman get into his. He helped Mr. Chapman, who had cut his rope. Right. That's right. He cut his rope because not he, realizing. He, he did not re, not realizing and not thinking he'd never done this before. He hadn't <laughs> seen it and seen them in you. He cut his. He thought it was you know probably too long. Yeah. <laughs> and then when he realized what he did, he re, he retied it. <clears throat> Thankfully, he could tie a square knot. Yeah. The fact, <laughs> so now he claims he didn't tie a square knot. He, it was some other knot that he tied that was better than a square knot. But really? Yes. Uh, okay. But it, at the but time, it worked. But it worked. It was a little <laughs> shorter than. It was now a little. Sh- <clears throat> a little shorter. And the other thing, this is just a little bit. I, I'm sorry, but your <clears throat> your your door gunner Scott had st- stepped into his rig backwards. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, Scott stepped in into it backwards. When when you <laughs> when you step into the McGuire rig, the the rope is in front of you, and right. you hang you hang on and you get lifted up. Scott stepped into it, and the rope was behind his behind his back, so he had to hold on. <laughs> he had to hold on behind him. Oh no! So and then. Again, the experience of being pulled out on ropes, your first time yes. under enemy fire for you and your team with, uh, with Dick Crawford hanging on. And you write, we didn't get more than about 50 feet above the ground when several NVA ran into the clearing right below us with their AK-47s on full automatic shooting straight up at us. I opened fire with my M60, dropping three of the NVA. Scott fired his M79, his shot exploding amidst the center of the rest. After my initial burst, my M60 jammed due to a severe angle. So now my M60 was useless. So I dropped it and watched it fall, going down through the overhead windshield window of the co-pilot's seat. Apparently, our action brought us just enough time to clear the trees and start getting away. My God. Hmm. <laughs> you captured that moment where it's like to be on strings coming out under fire. Yeah. Don't, yeah. You, and like, don't you feel like they're just everyone's going to come up and go right to your testicles? Everything. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> yes. 
Like I'm hanging, yeah. you're hanging there. It's like, oh my God, they're going to shoot my manhood. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and you know, uh, as I, as I mentioned in the book, I I don't understand how it is that we didn't get shot because they were so close. We oh, hadn't yeah. we hadn't cleared the bamboo yet. We hadn't we hadn't. They were right there. They would reach out and touch. <laughs> But um, and and Crawford was you know he tied himself onto onto my 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 strap, uh, so he was hanging on hanging there too. Oh, yeah, and it, you know and again, a credit to that that young pilot who you didn't know at the time. Yep, he had gone up straight up to everybody was out of the wood line. Yes, and away from that there was no going through the woods ricocheting. But at the same time. Just going straight up and mm-hmm. pulling out five men—that's mm-hmm. a tedious process. While under fire, under heavy enemy while fire. at twelve point seven, it's pumping away, trying to knock oh, them down. My God! Whew. And as, as you said, another miracle—you're <laughs> still alive. Yeah, the bull off the helmet. Yeah, and now you're able to lift and get out. And even then, um, you're not completely clear. No. And of course. You have one of those unique moments in time, too. As you're pulling out, you watched an F-4 Phantom jet firing his 20 Mike Mike Vulcan cannon and dropping bombs on the area we just lifted from. Green tracers from NVA positions followed the F-4, coming in and pulling away. It was very surreal to see our gunship going up in smoke and flames. After making a single gun run and bomb drop, the F-4 passed by us. <laughs> That's amazing. Dipping his wings to acknowledge us, then climbed to a high altitude and streaked away. Meanwhile, we're, you're receiving small arms fire, mm-hmm. continuing. And then um, you had some personal fatigue that began to set in mm-hmm. as you got higher. And then, again, getting back to your personal thing of what it's like to be on the strings, we were in the air about 15 to 20 minutes at an altitude that varied from eight to 9,000 feet when I lost the feeling in my left arm. I also lost feeling in both my legs. What was happening? Had I been hit in the back by one of the machine gun bullets or did a piece of airburst shrapnel find its mark? Meanwhile, you looked down to see Staff Sergeant Crawford, who was still tied into your leg strap, <laughs> and he seemed to be hurting too. And this, again, is that phenomenon of while flying through the air on strings. We were moving through the air so slowly because there was much drag coming from the five of us dangling beneath the helicopter. And the fact that we were flying high for a Yui, eight to 9,000 feet, the Yui just could not fly any faster. We only had a forward airspeed of about 50 to 60 miles per hour. The airburst would stop for a couple of minutes, and then they would start up. And then, of course, you go through a litany here. Of this air anti-aircraft weaponry had knocked down A-1 Sky Raiders, Phantom Jets, uh, Jolly Green Giants, the H3s, and the, or the HH3 Jolly Green Giants. And here they were popping at you guys going 50 to 60 miles an hour. And maybe talk a little bit about what it was like there 
but also on other occasions when once you crossed the fence and went into Laos, how you were often, your aircrafts were often engaged by enemy anti-aircraft fire and what that was like. And so you had to hear even going back. Right. That, that, was, uh, that, that was a common occurrence once we crossed the border into Laos. Uh, anti-aircraft would start and the air bursts would start. And, and it always reminded me of World War II movies oh, yeah. and, and newsreels of all this flack going, these airbursts going. And, and I thought, I never expected this. <laughs> <laughs> I had the same feeling. <laughs> yeah. I, I, WTF? Yeah. Which war am I in? Yeah, ex- oh, no, this is World War. No, it, this is Vietnam. Exactly, exactly. And it, it was it, kind of surreal, you know. It's, uh, it was popping around and popping around. But it got to be second nature. You know, I mean, we knew we knew we were going to most likely get that, regardless of where it was, whether we launched out of FOB-1 or if we launched out of Mylock or, or Quezon when we were launching out of there. So that wasn't... I don't, for some reason, it didn't bother me too much um, <laughs> until until that day. Yes, um, you know, and then it, then the thoughts are going that you know what the heck is going on? I mean, how come they've got radar? Oh, yeah. You know, we've encountered radar with the anti-aircraft. Um, is it bec- maybe because we're going so slow that their timing is way to hell off? That could have been it, and, huh? and that could have been it. That you know, they they would knock down. F-4s, oh, oh yeah. they would knock down Cobras. They're, you know, they're flying 180 miles an hour, the Cobras. I, I don't know. I have no explanation. <laughs> the good news is they didn't. Yeah, the good news is they didn't. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But it also, I mean, you also had a very, very personal paragraph in there where you're talking about your um, right hand was cramping up badly and you couldn't shake it. Uh, not couldn't shake it out because I would need to let go in order to do that, and you couldn't let go. My head was pounding. My body was hurting. I was beginning to think that all hope was lost. I closed my eyes and said this short prayer, Lord my God, if it is your desire that I live through this day, I will never again doubt your existence. Powerful stuff. And well written, sir. That moment in time, huh? Yeah, and and, and as we're as you're reading it, I'm, I'm I get goosebumps, and I get goosebumps most of the times when I think about that. And as I tried to describe in the book, yeah, it really was like a warm blanket right I, after that prayer, right after, yeah, moments right after. And now, um, my my hand wasn't cramped up. My body didn't hurt. My head wasn't pounding. And, you know, I, I'm, I remember I'm just looking around, looking at the airbursts, listening to the cannons go up. <laughs> but, but with the feel, but a really feeling of peace and felt like, you know, it's going to be okay. It, yeah. it, it, was, it was a moment. And, um, and just prior to that, I really thought, uh, you know, I, I can't hang on. I really can't hang on much longer. Yeah. Um, and if I let go, then I'm going upside down and out, and so will Crawford. He'd go, too. <laughs> double whammy. <laughs> double whammy. <laughs> and, you know, and so, again, in the book, 
The airburst and tracers followed us on and off until we crossed the border into Vietnam near the NVA's Korok Mountain. Finally, the shooting stopped, and somehow we were all still alive. Another nine miles passed until we arrived at a small marine fire support base on top of a mountain just southeast of the then-abandoned Quezon. And Quezon was the Marine Corps base that was historic during the Tet Offensive. Little known was that we had FOB-3 mm-hmm. that was running missions across the fence from there at the time. A lot of historians forget to talk about that. <laughs> but as we approached the small uh, fire support base, the slick pilot misjudged how far we were hanging below the helicopter. As we crossed the concertina wire on the base perimeter, Crawford got dragged through the wire. <laughs> oh. So then another miracle, though. Yeah. Tell us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he got he got dragged through. Uh, when I say dragged through, I mean, he didn't go under the wire and, and pull through, but he got dragged through, and it, it caught his fatigues, and it ripped through his fatigues, and he didn't get shredded. He How? did not get shredded. He had a couple little scratches, but not even yeah. not even bloodied. <laughs> through the process so and and um you know the the pilot was out of gas literally he was literally out of gas yeah and he put us down uh, safely and the moment he put us down he set down the engine stopped because it was out of fuel it was out of fuel oh my God. and and here's the other thing i didn't know this until i spoke to him a couple years ago right the pilot he told me that while he was hovering, before he lifted us out, while he was hovering, while mm-hmm. we were getting into the rigs, his low fuel warning light and alarm went off. That low fuel warning is 20 minutes of 20 fuel. 20 right? Right. We were a long, long ways beyond 20 minutes of fuel. Whoa. Um, another miracle. <laughs> he doesn't know. He when he told me that he he just doesn't understand it that maybe the, the fuel gauges were wrong, uh, but our wingship our gunship uh, wingship his low fuel warning went on when he made his gun run pass and that's why he had to leave us because he was running out of fuel and that was long before we got pulled out. Oh my, you know, and so again, this is the experience of being on strings. And you said, as soon as we hit the ground, Crawford untied himself from me. I tried to get up to get myself out of the McGuire rig. And it was then that I realized again that something was seriously wrong with me. My left arm was just dangling and totally numb, as were my legs. My right foot was flopped on the right side with the side of my foot lying flat on the ground. My first thought was, oh, shit, I'm paralyzed. Immediately followed by, okay, I'm paralyzed, but I'm still alive. I propped myself up in a sitting position with my right arm, which was working fine. Crawford asked me where I was hit. I said I didn't know, but asked him to check on Scott and the others, which he did. So in the meantime, this curious Marine comes up to you, <laughs> and the Marine, <laughs> realizing where you came from, coming from the West, he said, where the hell did you guys come from? 
there are no friendlies beyond this fire base. <laughs> hey, I just think that's one of those classical it, moments it, where it welcome is. to Sog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And then last but not least, when um, another helicopter comes in and you, because you couldn't move, they pick you up, they get you on a stretcher, they throw you in another medevac and Crawford went with you. Yes. And um, so, and, you're, and it was odd because, you know, this is the first time you ever found yourself in a helicopter where you weren't looking out, right. observing you were a passenger. So that phenomenon struck you. And just hearing that womp, womp, womp suddenly sounded like the AAA, the anti-aircraft artillery from Laos. And Crawford must have noticed something about me. He put his hand down and patted my chest saying, you're safe now, Chief. You'll be okay. Dickie Crawford. Yeah, and and apparently, I think I was uh, going into shock. I think that's what it was. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I felt so vulnerable. That's when I w- was feeling vulnerable. More vulnerable than... Under fire. Than under fire. I mean, under fire, you're, you, you can react. You can, you know, do your thing. But laying there on the stretcher... Uh, on the floor of the helicopter, not being able to see out and uh, and hearing that sound, it just it just sounded like it sounded like the Anik aircraft to me. <laughs> and Crawford, yeah, I mean, you had, to know him is is to love him or hate him. Yeah, it depends on the <laughs> or day. Both. It depends or, on what time of day it, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Before absolutely. or after the first six pack. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I don't know you you had this this reflection at that moment where you said to yourself, I was alive after an ordeal that by all accounts should have killed me. I could have been killed when the bullet hit my flight helmet. I could have been killed when bullets were hitting the gunship all around me. I could have been killed in the crash. I could have been killed when the NVA raced into the crash site with their AKs firing at me on full auto, just feet below me. I could have been killed by being dragged through the trees. I could have been killed by shrapnel while hanging from the rope at 8,000 feet in the air. After all these near-death encounters, and yet I was still here. I was still alive. That's what I needed to focus on. And then you get into the situation. You arrive at Fubai at the 22nd (laughs) Surgical Unit, and you run into this clerk that comes out. Well, give me your name. You give him the name. Then he goes to Dickie. Give me your name. So I can't tell you where it's classified. Well, give me your surname. I can't tell you that. Where'd you come from? I can't tell you that. And, of course, him being a good clerk and everything gets really upset. Then he calls this lieutenant colonel out. <laughs> so talk about that a little bit before he pulls his trump card. Oh, that, that was funny. I mean, you know, because we weren't, you know, leaking blood out all over right it it wasn't an emergency situation so yeah. they're going to th- do the, their they do SOP, the normal triage normal triage yeah. and and the poor clerk he was just he was just trying to do his job um and it's, he went he went and got the uh the uh 22nd surge commander and um he came into the into the picture and said that you know we have to have this information to uh, to treat these people 
and he and Crawford start going at it. Now Crawford's not wearing any rank, right? You know, he's just in his fatigue, so nobody knows. It. No name, right. no name, no so rank. So Staff Sergeant Crawford then tells Lieutenant <laughs> Colonel at the hospital, "I am." So Crawford said, <laughs> "He said, Lieutenant Colonel, I am Major Clyde Sincere. <laughs> I command." The, the outpost at the base at Mylock, and these are my men, and I want them treated. And so it was, they were still, things weren't going too well, and it, they started to uh, move things. And, and he said, we'll, get take, we'll take care of things later or something. But right just moments after that, within minutes, the yeah. colonel was still there. Yeah. <laughs> In, in, walks, in walks Major Clyde Sincere Jr. In, in walks Major Sincere. <laughs> and Crawford, Crawford sees him, and he said, "Sir, uh, can, we, can we step outside for a moment? We got to talk. We got to talk." So, so uh, after, so I didn't know it at the time, but years later, yeah. Major Sincere told me the story that you know he about his side of the story, about his side of the story, and 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 he told Crawford that you know, do you realize? <laughs> the consequences for of impersonating an officer, impersonating an officer, and and he said, "I'll deal with you later." Yeah, and he Major Sincere walks back in, and he he looks at this uh, lieutenant, lieutenant colonel, colonel and, and he says, then, and he says, he says, he said, Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel, do you know who I am? My name is Lieutenant Colonel Roy Barr. And I am responsible for all men, SF men and troops uh, in an I-Corps area. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said, if, if you don't treat these men ASAP, uh, I, I will have to make some phone calls and, you know, see that they get taken care of. And, and yeah, because Clyde goes, says, I will call the commanding general yeah. of I-Corps yeah. about you and your reluctance to treat my men. Yeah. Lieutenant Colonel says, that's not necessary, sir. <laughs> we'll just record that the wounds occurred in Quang Tree area. Yeah. Will that be okay, yeah. sir? Exactly. Exactly. The, the whole atmosphere, <laughs> the whole atmosphere changed. Oh. And, uh, and, and, he said, and so... Clyde said, uh, Major Sincere said, yeah, that, that'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so then after all the dust settled, everybody gets treated. Yeah. That that Remf, that lieutenant yeah. colonel, then yeah. comes to you and has one little final parting shot. Oh, yeah. yeah. He comes up to you and he says, I've seen to it that you will not be getting a purple heart from this hospital right right uh talk about chicken bleep yeah at the time i you know you i didn't could, care you I were could, glad to be alive i could care i could care less you know um and and exactly i, I was just glad to be alive at that point years <laughs> you, later i was you know yeah. i i would think about it more and well and, out of your shot lieutenant colonel you turned to your good buddy scott and you said that barracks trooper can kiss my ass. Yeah. <laughs> <The> barracks trooper. <laughs> uh, so anyways, you finally get released uh, from the hospital. Your good buddy K.D. Garland from FOB1 came by, helped you out, and then they also presented you an FOB1 certificate, which is rare, which is also in the, a copy that's in your book, and uh, just another good reason to buy the book. And... Um, um, let's see here. 
what else happened during that time? You, did, you had to recoup for how long? Only a matter of days. While I was in the hospital, um, I started getting feeling back. First in my, my arm, my left arm, I started getting, getting feeling back. I was getting a lot of pain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but You're that was a ha- good like, thing. But this I got is a pain. You could feel it. Yeah, this is a good thing. <laughs> and then, uh, th- then the next day, I started getting feeling back into my legs. Uh, they were really pain. My hips hurt. My, you know, my body was really like one big bruise, I suppose. Um, and the doctors uh, said that I, I apparently had bruising to the spinal cord. Um, and that was what was causing the paralysis. Oh, okay. and um, and that you know, everything was everything was good. Everything was good. I hurt a lot, you know, but that was okay. Okay, so um, at at that you've already covered your meeting, which was in the year two thousand twenty, with the pilot. Yes, that saved you that day for the first time. And yes. how how'd you connect with him? Was that through the SOA or? Something different. No. Um, you just got a phone call. That was, it was through. Um, Scott? Through the Vietnam Helicopter Pilots Association. Okay. And I, I believe it was through um, Chapman, Richard Chapman. Right. Who was our co-pilot that day. Right. Um, the, the pilot of that aircraft was looking for information about that day. And one thing led to another, um, and uh, he, I got, I got a phone call one evening, and um, he asked if, you know, who I was, asked me my, if I was Roger Lockshear and that I served with the 101st Airborne and whatnot. And when anybody, you know, were to call and start asking questions, you, you know, my red flags go up. Oh yeah, naturally. Uh, but then he started talking about the events of that day and uh, September 28th and I knew it was the real deal because there's only a handful of people uh, who really know what that took, kind of detail that kind of detail and it turns out yes he was um, <coughs> he was the pilot of the slick that uh, that lifted us out he was uh, he was new he was new to running oh, sog right? He was new to running SOG missions, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think he said he was only 20 years old or so at the time. And um, and that he he had couldn't, there were a lot of things he couldn't explain and had questions about. Uh, first, he the first thing he did was, uh, or one of the first things he said to me was, I, I've been wanting to apologize all these years for 50 years. I've been wanting to apologize to the man that I broke his legs by hitting, dropping him hard on that fire support base. Oh, that right? Yeah, he thought because yeah, I mean, uh, he he just assumed that I my legs got broken when he put me down, and, and I said no apologies necessary. <laughs> I said you didn't do anything. I said I was I had paralysis at the time. And uh, and he said, you didn't. Get, your legs weren't broken. I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and all, he'd been carrying that baggage For fifty years. All those years, oh, he was carrying God. that baggage, thinking that that he hurt me. Well, he saved my life. Yeah, that, that he hurt. Even if he broke my legs, I would still give him yeah. a kiss. <laughs> yeah, at least you're there to give him a kiss. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so he went on. He had a lot of questions. 
Um, and, and he went on to say that there are things that he can't explain that, that took place, being shot at like we were and not getting hit. He couldn't understand that. He not could not blown under- out of the sky. Yeah, he couldn't understand. I like your theory, though. You're going so slow that they're used to faster targets, maybe. I, 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 yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, so it was interesting. It was a very interesting conversation oh, that I had man. with him. Yeah. And he went on to tell me that his co-pilot of that day uh, stopped flying and became a minister. After that mission? After that mission. <laughs> after that mission, because he said he was so moved that um, that he just he his co-pilot said that he's convinced that he saw multiple miracles. Well, he did. Well, he did. I I think he did. He didn't realize it's just another day inside. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so after a few days, yeah. um, you know, we're back in the saddle. So um, at this point in time, uh, we can return back to when and what made you decide to go to Uncle Sam's army and and how did you become a crew chief well i i joined the army my intention was to go sf to go special forces so the recruiter told me that uh, you can't go directly into special forces you have to go regular army then you go to airborne you know unassigned. airborne unassigned yeah. so you you go in airborne unassigned so i'm thinking that Okay, I'll go in airborne on a sign. I'll go basic training, and then I'll go to SF. Well, he he failed to tell me that they could send me anywhere for <laughs> AIT. Oh, <laughs> you know that's right. Yeah. So, uh, but I didn't know that. Of course. So after basic training, and I I, I get my assignment to Fort Rucker. I'm thinking, you know, what the hell is this? <laughs> I thought I'm going to Fort Bragg. Yeah. <laughs> or Fort Benning. Or Benning. You heard Benning about first. a thing called jump school there. Yeah. 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 So what, what I, year was well, this now? This is 1966. Okay. And I'm thinking, well, where's Fort, Bren- Fort Benning <laughs> in all of this? <laughs> so I got, I got my orders. I went to, I went to uh, Fort Rucker. Uh, went to the first school for uh, aircraft. Did very well. As so that, that that for crew chief's school? That was for maintenance. Maintenance, okay. Actually, it was just general aircraft maintenance. I did very well. Um, so they sent me to the next advanced school. I did very well there. They sent me to a third one, which was um, which was now uh, Rotary Wing, and did quite well. Come out near the top of the class in the top, you know, three or four in the class. Wow. And they sent me to the last school that they had. Which uh, was? For CH-34. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is that right? They still had training for those? Yes, they did. I've got a, I have a photo of me uh, trimming, trimming the, the blades of a, of a uh, 34, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, then, uh, so I went through that. Uh, after that, then I got my, my orders for jump school for Fort Benning. And uh, I went to jump school, uh, started a day or two after Thanksgiving, 1966. While at jump school, unbeknown to me, one of my classmates was Tim Schaff. No. Yeah. <laughs> 
So our our paths crossed at a very early time at and and jump at, school. At jump school. Oh my god. Can you imagine? No. Uh, so went to jump school, loved it. Loved it. Um, during the the final days of jump school, I met with the uh, SF recruiter. And he advised me, which I was very surprised. He re- advised me not to go to qualification first. He said, right now, the Army is sucking up all the infantry it can get. If you have any issues, any any problems, if you get hurt or anything goes wrong in qualification, you are going to go to a line outfit. They're going to send you right to an infantry. He said, do this. I've seen your orders. You're going to the 101st. He said, the 101st, it's only a matter of time till they get sent over. Get experience as a crew chief. Get some background. If things should fail, if you want to go to uh, SF later and for some reasons you don't make it, you'll go back to being a crew chief. He saw how good your test scores were, too. Yeah, and uh, he said, that's my advice. I really strongly recommend get some time under your belt as a crew chief, and then. uh, then. So uh, so I got sent to the 101st. I'm there uh, January 1st. Fort Campbell? Fort Campbell, 1967. Wow. Um, Loved it. Uh, I I absolutely loved it. I was with a good unit. Um, Historic. I had I had a, a great first sergeant. I mean, he he was a, a poster <laughs> poster boy for for the hundred first. He really was. Yeah. I mean, he was a strict guy, but he he was a good guy, and he he actually he looked after me as the, uh, the time rolled out. Sure. And uh, I got promoted quickly. I uh, made it up to E five uh, in fifteen months, and. Wow. Uh, so we went to Vietnam. We got our orders. Actually, prior to, prior to that, I'll just back up, and I don't mention this in the book. Right. Um, in the summer of 1967, uh, he, our first sergeant, Sergeant Wojcicki, he called me in his office, and he said, uh, hey, listen. He says, I got, a, I got an opportunity I think you might be interested in. <laughs> he said, the Army is putting together a underwater salvage team deep deep water salvage team he said i think it would be a great assignment he said you he said the way the way it works is going to work is you're going to go out to california do all your water training he says it's not going to be training to fail it's going to be training to train right period um he said so there's no risk of once you once you qualify there's no risk of you know that and he said, you're going to be working as an independent organization, and they may send you here, there, all around the world. He said, it's going to be a very exciting thing. He said, so I want you to, you know. So I said, sure. So <laughs> this friend of mine, this buddy of mine, yeah, uh, this Craig, he and I said, yeah, we'll do it. Well, after we said, we'll do it, he said, okay, now here's, here's the bad news. If you fail the qualification don't come back. Don't what? come back to the unit. He says, we will not have fail- failures, losers <laughs> in this unit. <laughs> That's I a said, nice send off. I said, okay, Top. I said, but, you know, how are we going to train to prepare? He said, you can take all the time you want. He said, take, you know, one of the company Jeeps and go over to uh, Kentucky Lake. 
right. do all the swimming, all the working out, all you need to do. I said, okay, that's a deal. He said, he said, but he says the, the CEO, the old man wants to see you. Really? So, yeah. So we go into the CEO's yeah, office, yeah. and and he's big grin on his face, and he said, I'm happy that you guys, I, I think you'll do really well, and it's all positive. And then he got serious, and he said, just remember, if you fail, <laughs> do not come back. <laughs> I will not have a loser in my. <laughs> <laughs> You're volunteered, but don't fail. Yeah. Whoa. So, you know, naturally. Welcome to the 101st. Yeah. So, I, you know, yeah, okay. Sure. I'm, I'm good with it. So, over the next two or three weeks, we trained. We would go over to Kentucky Lake, swim until we were prunes. Swim and swim and swim and swim and swim. And uh, build up our, you know, our performance and whatnot. Yeah. So the day goes for testing. Went for the testing. The testing was, it was reasonable. I, I don't. There were a lot of people failed. A lot of people could could be. The 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 testing was basically um, there was a freestyle distance number of laps. I don't remember how many laps yeah. on the pool. Uh, there was an underwater uh, holding your breath. You know, underwater just still. There was a treading water. I, th- I think the treading water was like 30 minutes, maybe. Um, there was an underwater swim, distant swim, which was the length of the pool, uh, which, again, I mean, we were, we were prepared for You're it. You were ready for it. We were ready for it. So we passed everything with, without any issues, not even close. Uh, but there were a lot of people that failed. <laughs> I, I just, they just didn't prepare. Yeah. That's, that's all it was. So back to our unit. We go, and we're waiting for our orders. By now, this is August, beginning of August. By around the 10th or 15th of order, uh, August, orders come down. All prior assignments, orders are canceled. Ooh. 101st is going to Vietnam. Welcome to the war, baby. So, yeah. So that took care of my uh, my yeah. time. as as So... We went to Vietnam. I mean, we had already had our gunships. We'd been working out on our gunships. Uh, I, I had a lot of training for the UE itself, to, you know, for as a crew chief. Right. Um, I had a lot of weapons training. Um, I had a lot of M60 training. So with the crew chief training, what, what's the long, is there like a beginning, like a 12-week training, then there's a further, or how's that no, go? Uh, for, for the UE training, I, I think it was, I, I really don't remember exactly how long, but it, it wasn't long. It was because long enough. It was long enough, yeah, yeah, because, I mean, I had already been cha- trained on the 23s and, and whatnot, you know, the small the, sm- right. the small little whirly bird yeah. type. <laughs> that the army had. I'd been trained on the thirty-four, the CH thirty-four, um, the King. The old Sikorsky, yes. yeah. Little did you realize you'd be dealing with them in Vietnam, in right? a different way, yeah. <laughs> in a different way. Um, so, I mean, I had already had a lot of training, and the training uh, for the Hueys was just—I mean, I loved it. I, I, I was at the hundred first. Uh, there were a lot of opportunities were offered to me. Any kind of specialized training. Uh, I would do. I would. Wow. I would jump on. Uh, went to chemical warfare training. Uh, went. Went to. Well, like I say, with the M60. Went. To, I wanted to get more training on that. And so that's, yeah. And that's where you had to shoot at moving targets while you're moving. Yes. <laughs> well, that that's where be, I. That's, that's unique training. Well, it is, and it still screws me up today for trap shooting. <laughs> I. You know, you have to reverse lead. Right. 
Well, I still reverse lead. No. I, I have a, that's my biggest problem with trap shooting. So, uh, but that that was all good stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And and yesterday when, when I was at, at uh, the 160th, it brought back those feelings because one of the, one of the pilots, one of the Little Bird pilots said yeah. to me, I can't say this is a job. He said, I love it. Well, <laughs> I felt that. I felt that way. Absolutely. Know? So yeah, I did all the training for the uh, for the with the UEs and whatnot. So they ship you over. I was I was selected to be part of an advance party. Uh, one other crew chief, myself, mm-hmm. this a gentleman by the name of Lieutenant Soares, who I mentioned in the book. Yeah. Um, the three of us we loaded two aircraft, two Hueys, uh, onto a C one thirty three. 33. Yeah. That's a 130 on steroids. Yeah, yeah. It looks just like it, but bigger. <laughs> but bigger. Yeah. Um, along with all the weapons and a Jeep onto this uh, onto this aircraft and made our way over to Vietnam ahead of the uh, the company. Wow. So, yeah. Anyway, is that, so you wound up landing at Benoit? Tonsonut, yeah. At, at Benoit. At sure. Benoit, Tonsonut. Yeah. yeah, land at Tonsonut, then you go to Benoit, and that's where you set up. No, yeah, but but getting we ready didn't, for we didn't do, we didn't have to do any of that. There was there was a, apparently a maintenance company assigned to that. What we did when we landed at at uh, in Benoit uh, at Tonsonu, we uh, offloaded ourselves and our our duffel bags. Um, one, a, a staff sergeant Gregory, who was our maintenance sergeant, he was there to pick us up and bring us up to Benoit, up to uh, our base camp up there in Benoit. And a few days later, the aircraft arrived, all all assembled and ready, ready to, to roll. go. Ready to roll, yeah. So what what's the time frame here? November, December. This is December. I arrived in country December sixth. Okay. Um, so it's only a few days later that the aircraft showed up, and uh, then our company personnel started showing up and whatnot. Yeah, and so as the company arrives, you're still down south. Yes. When Tet arrives, yes, and you uh, in your book you detail how you had some interesting um, SOPs in place. If you had incoming, your gunships had an SOP where you would get to the gunships and get them in the air, yes, in a matter of a few minutes, which yes. is really surprising. Mm-hmm. So if you wake up in the dead of the night, get your get enough of uniform on to get to your aircraft to well, get it off the ground to go engage. Well, here's 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 the thing. Yeah. Um, I slept in uniform. Was that right? Well, yeah, because yeah, I you was had to be ready twenty four seven. You know, I was on call twenty four seven. So I I slept with with my uniform in my uniform. I slept with my sidearm on my chest. Sure. Um, my M my M sixteen and and flight helmet bag were right alongside my bunk. Um, my boots were three quarters laced, so I just slip into them. I could tie them later. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So Indeed. yeah, so it was. Um, yeah, it wasn't so bad. We can get we can get off the ground very quick, well, except in Benoit now. Benoit, the flight line was a little distance from where our barracks were. Right. Um, it's certainly walking distance, but uh, it, it was sev- several hundred yards away. 
But here you had a chance to use that SOP, and this is part of your introduction to Vietnam. Yeah. You're getting incoming. You guys sprint to two or 300 yards. Yes. Get to your aircraft, get up, and this is your first engagement with the enemy that's attacking your base. Right, right. Well, this is um, what happened at Tet. I, I had just returned to our base camp in Benoit. Um, prior to that, I was on a, uh, an operation up in Somme Bay where we would rotate. We would go up there for three or four days at a time, a fire team. Uh, this two, is two, two corps this is in Tukor, yes, right. in Sambay, up near Budap and, and the other camps. Uh, there, <laughs> there we were only, you know, 100 feet from our aircraft right. laying in the dirt, sleeping in, <laughs> the, in the dirt. So, so to get off the ground when the mortars start coming in, I mean, it was, it was quick. It was very fast, and it had to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, do you have, so you go into Tet. You have a few nights there where you guys really earn your pay, yeah. including some really horrendous uh, gunfire. Well, the, the night of t- the night of Tet, the first night itself, the very the very first night of Tet was uh, was very it was it was pretty intense, and uh, I, I think that the uh, the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese and sappers and whatnot they they didn't anticipate. Um, what they encountered uh, down at our flight line. Um, we had um, four gunships um, there, right, and two were up at Som Bay, but we had four gunships there, which meant that we had eight M60s. Whoa. So <laughs> when, when the, the mortars and gunfire started and we charged down to the flight line, um, we always we always kept our M60s in just laying on the seat in the aircraft in the gunship, and um, always full load of ammo. So we we ran got down to the flight line, and there, there I mean, of course, there's tracers flying. All green tracers are flying all around um, from a distance between our flight line and the Benoit airstrip, the main airstrip. There was a long span of open open ground uh, with high grass in between. And the sappers had gotten past the Benoit airfield, and they were, I believe, what they were trying to do was to breach our command headquarters because uh, company headquarters were the two generals were uh, based right. was right at the beginning of our flight line, and it seemed obvious that they were trying to uh, to breach that and and attack that area. Um, I don't think they anticipated the uh, heavy gunfire that they were going to encounter when we reached we reached the the flight line in a matter of moments. I mean, it was fast that we were on the flight line, and we had beautiful revetments for the aircraft sure. that were they were thick they were perfect they were like bunkers without a roof <laughs> <laughs> so so we set up our m60s right there and we were able to return fire as soon as they would open up fire i mean we were across you can, you can figure the, the span oh, yeah. of a flight line where there's four helicopters parked 
um, we could catch them in a, uh, a health, hellfire of M60 uh, coming from eight guns, from eight M60s every time they'd open up. And that, that would go on all night long from different areas of that open, open field and um, with devastating, devastating results. Uh, that went on into during the night, through the night, into the morning. Um, during the morning, they, uh, the, the uh, Viet Cong uh, picked off a guard that was in a tower uh, next, to our, next to our flight line, and it was so foolish uh, with this, this guard. I mean, he was just standing standing there now the, this guard tower is the only standing structure around i mean and he's standing up there and you have who knows how many right vc in the in the uh in the fields there well it, he was standing he got he took a headshot and went down um of course we were able to, to see where that came from and we opened up on it and that was the end of that um, later on in the day, another guard uh, got picked off. Whoa. Uh, but he he stayed down uh, most of the time, and every once in a while he would stand up to stretch his legs. And uh, one of the one of the Viet Cong apparently picked up on the, on the habit and waited for the right right time, and he he stood up and he, he got nailed. Um, but uh, in the end. Uh, our flight line wasn't breached. Um, headquarters area stayed safe and secure, and uh, I don't. I don't know. We never did find out how many, um, how many VC that we took down um, that night and that day. Uh, the regular army personnel came in and swept the area, um, and just we just were told that there were many, many bodies that were found out there. Right. Uh, also, during the morning, I had a, a scary event. Uh, while we were, it was daylight. There, there was so much smoke from gunfire in the air. I mean, it just, it was just pungent. I mean, just heavy, and a large, large explosion went off. And off in the distance, here comes this mushroom cloud. Whoa. And I said to my partner, I said, I said, oh shit, it's a nuke. <laughs> That's what it looked like. Yeah, I mean, it was a perfect image of a nuke going off. And what it turned out to be was uh, Long Ben had a had a massive military complex. Their ammo dump got hit. And that, that's what that was, some large explosion from the ammo dump. It wasn't a nuke at all. Oh, but still, just the thought <laughs> oh, for that I, moment. It was, a, it was oh, oh, shit. And during this training period, your, your helicopter gets, during one of your gun runs, you get mm. shot up really bad, mm. barely make it back to base. You have 36 bullet holes in your yeah. helicopter. You survive it all. And then you have one of those other moments where it's just uh, your pilot uh, warrant officer to Whitman mm. because he had been an SF medic. No, no, that would be Whitaker. Whitaker, I'm sorry. And uh, he was special forces medic first and then when you guys get back to base there were so many casualties from yeah. a battle with the 101st that yeah. was involved in yeah. that 
that night, you and him were helping transport the wounded right on top of everything else this is like in early days of tet this is the very early days of tet yeah man it was a major a major battle uh going on we got shot down we got shot down from a so-called friendly village yeah (laughs) you're right (laughs) quote friendly yeah friendly um but nobody got hurt you know nobody got hurt uh we were able to um force land at our little airstrip this is Somme bay yeah and um in the meantime uh, medevacs are coming in. They're starting to flow in with a lot of wounded and yeah. a lot of a lot of dead. And there's some really good stories in that part of the book. But uh, at some point, we got to move on to yep. your arrival at FOB One. Yes. And because uh, <laughs> um, prior to that, your unit had been assigned and done some work with special forces at traditional A camps. Yes. And you had earned the respect of people already at the 5th Special Forces Group headquarters in the Trang. Mm-hmm. And again, there's some really good details in here that's rich with that. Mm-hmm. And again, we suggest getting the book for those little details. And um, when at some point you finally realize we're going to FOB1 Fubai, mm-hmm. you'll be stationed at Camp Eagle, which was at Fubai, a little further northwest of Highway 1 mm-hmm. at Fubai. And... Uh, the I, it's just funny because there's a couple of great little scenes in here. Your first impressions of what it was like coming in, and uh, uh, you were first greeted by the uh, officer in charge. Said we're happy to have you all here. He explained how it was a top secret operation, and this was not a special forces A camp, and it didn't operate like one. It was structured in an entirely different way. He then got very serious and stated that if we agreed to work with them we would be conducting highly classified operations that were extremely dangerous and usually conducted outside of Vietnam. If we didn't want to do this, we should say so and leave now. We looked at each other and agreed in unison. We wanted to work with them. (laughs) I love it. Then you guys, uh, you had to sign the uh, non-disclosure agreements. Yes. So you couldn't talk about it for 20 years. Right. So that is... uh, a part of the history of SOG that you aviators were a part of that, you know, people just forget that part. But mm. here today, it's really part of your unique niche in all of this. And um, they went on to explain what prairie fire missions were and uh, the bright light missions. And you go through a lot of this training and your introduction. Then was this where you had your first introduction to king bees the south vietnamese air force they again they had their predominantly ch-34 sikorskis which were older helicopters on like the ue mm-hmm. and so this was your first uh, encounter with them it is at <clears throat> excuse me at fob1 yes this is the first encounter with them i was very surprised to see them i knew the aircraft well yeah, because you had all that training on. Uh, yeah, and and like the aircraft, it was uh, it was one powerful, powerful uh, aircraft, and and sounded it as well. It had the greatest. Once it sound. got started, once it got well, it would spit, and you know, and well, the reason why it's a nine cylinder B seventeen yes. rotary engine. Yes, yeah, that powered the uh, old H thirty fours. Yes, it was. Yes, oh my was. god! And so, but also. In those early days, we had your first operation, or one of your first operations where you were working on a team, 
and they had instructions working with the king bees and there was a communications breakdown that had fatal results. Mm, yes. And you maybe could talk about that a little <clears throat> bit because that's part of your learning about how it gone on. Of course, you got your Mr. Whitaker's your outstanding pilot. Mm-hmm. Mr. Whitman. Whitman. Um, uh, Mr. Whitaker is one of the pilots, was one of the pilots. In the early days, but In your early pilot days. is Whitman. Yes, correct. I, I stand corrected. Thank you. Yep. Um, yeah, the uh, it was in May, May of 1968. Um, FLB-1 put a, we put a hatchet force out into Laos. Uh, it was just on the west side of the Oshawa Valley. And um, we were going to go out on a resupply mission to that, um, to that group. We had uh, laid out a plan, a flight pattern, and plan uh, in the talk with the King Bee pilots uh, of how we would approach the area. We knew the area um, was dangerous. We knew there had been contact, a lot of contact, uh, with NVA by the uh, by the um, uh, by the hatchet force that was there. The hatchet force had already taken some casualties so we knew that there was an area that was particularly dangerous right near the lz what was going to be the lz so we told the uh king bees that they would stay to our right to our northern side all the way out past the lz then we would circle around we would guide them and the king bee in to the LZ, they would follow us. We would still be on their left, which is the dangerous side where we knew there had been a, a concentration of NVA. So everybody agreed, understood. And um, so we loaded up, went, uh, headed out. Just before reaching the LZ, everything was going good. Uh, for reasons unknown to me, and the King Bee pilots were the best. They were by far the best and fearless. Um, It seemed to me that on occasion, um, they would get tunnel vision to the task at hand, to the mission. And I think perhaps that's what happened on this day. The King Bee pilot had a load of ammo and explosives and also supplies. He broke from formation when we got near the LZ, broke from formation, went from our right side, went to our inside, to the left side, got between us and what we knew to be a very dangerous area. Uh, He had just got into that, that position when a burst, a huge burst of ground fire came up. Um, it looked to me like a RPG also hit the King Bee and um, the King Bee exploded. Oh. It nose, took nose down, went down the side of the mountain uh, on the, on the uh, northwest side of the mountain exploded again on impact. On board um, was uh, 
uh, a, a fellow by an SF by the name of John Robertson. Sure. Out of FOB1. Out of FOB1. Everyone was killed on that. Um, it was confirmed to us by the ground um, that there were no survivors. Uh, that that hurt. That really hurt. Uh, hurt bad. Uh, it felt like that somehow we had failed on our mission because we're there. Our sole purpose is to protect. But um, what happened happened, and and the only the only thing that that we could figure that the uh, that happened went wrong is perhaps the King B pilot got the tunnel vision to deliver his product to resupply uh, to, to resupply they needed the supply and he was going to resupply them um, and it was a fatal a fatal mistake wow charlie uh charlie uh berg was with that team on the ground with that uh, uh with that hatchet force oh is that right yeah wow and they were able to get them out eventually we got them out eventually, a couple days later, um, in a nasty, nasty, nasty firefight to get them to get them out. We also had a problem with our uh, your other supporting element. There. Our supporting element, <laughs> yeah. And Indeed. again, yeah, yeah. But but I think those were issues that you found and you had to address them. Yes, because working with in this case another armed service, right, and this. 101st was state-of-the-art at the time mm-hmm. in terms of close support. You had the experience going across the fence, mm-hmm. and those tactics clearly worked. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the uh, challenges. And I, Before we go, I just wanted to – I had to get back to that moment in time where you signed your uh, 20-year non-disclosure agreements. Mm-hmm. And you in your book, the way you described it was, we signed it and we started our new relationship with SOG. It would prove to be the most exciting, intense, dangerous, and most rewarding experience of my military career. Absolutely. Absolutely. Without, without a doubt. And it's just uh, how to, how to cover that. And then um, as you get into it, I wanted to get back to a mission that was later in the book where um, you participated in helping get a team out that captured three NVA POWs. Yes. <laughs> and this is November 7th, 1968. Yes. yes. And um, again, the team, I think it was led by Lieutenant uh, Ward. Yes, correct. And on his team, he had Richard Fitz. Yes. And Art Bader Jr. Yes. And um, they'd been at FOB1. And of course, Fitz and Bader had been at Mylock. Mm-hmm. And I, I forget the name of their team, but they had gone out and were able to capture three NVA. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Really? <laughs> and I I learned this because I'd forgotten about that story. Oh, really? So yeah, in reading okay. your book, I'm going, oh, yeah, it's all coming back to me now. Yeah. That was a historic day. We heard about it. Yeah. But And we were so busy running out of FOB1 that we just had our sure. little world going and here yeah. Mylock had it one of the you know for us at the time that was a major coup absolutely getting three NVA out and there's also I think 
some other uh, sidebars to all that because, again, when they had him, you guys had to respond to protect the team on the ground mm. with everything else that was going on. So what was that like? Did you get a sense of how important this mission was beforehand? Oh, absolutely. Part of your brief. Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, we knew. I mean, we put we put the team out there. We knew what their objective was. Okay. Uh, was to to get a PLW. Um, I don't think anybody um, expected to get three POWs. <laughs> right. You know, it was hard <laughs> hard enough. It was a rarity to get one. Absolutely. As you know, uh, and I, I don't know if there have ever been another situation where, where three POWs were taken out of Laos. Um, but th- this was, um, they were in hot pursuit. The NBA were in hot pursuit of the team, and a team they, they called a prairie fire emergency. And um, again, whenever that happened, it, it seemed like we, we we just couldn't get there fast enough. You know, every right. every moment, every moment is because you could hear the radio talk well, between we can, Covey, yeah, and the team and, on and the ground know, by then. We know that every second, not not minute, but every second is is critical to the team. And when we got on site and we saw what was going on, I mean, it, there's when the radio communications were coming back and forth. I mean, it's all gunfire going on. I mean, the NBA are. They are not not happy about is, what's is, going on. Is that too the case where when uh, you first arrive on scene, you're trying to get combo with the with the one zero mm-hmm. Lieutenant Ward, mm-hmm. but all you hear is a hand click. No, that's a different, that's mission. A different mission. That's a different okay. mission with Lieutenant Ward. Yeah, <laughs> another another but, hair raiser. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, so we're getting back to here. So what did you see as you coming in? You could see that because it was it was like a canyon area. Yes, and they were uh, they didn't know exactly where uh, where the, their LZ was going to be. Lieutenant Ward didn't right. know exactly where, so uh, we had called out what, a, a bomb crater that they could that they could reach. But it was it was uh, you know a few hundred yards away. Yeah. It wasn't close, and and the NVA. Uh, was in hot pursuit. I mean, they were they were right on their tail, and of course the POWs weren't wanting to cooperate too much with being taken. So, um, so you know, we found a team. We started uh, making you know multiple gun runs on the NVA that were in, in pursuit, and we were able to slow them down uh, enough for the team to get to uh, to the LZ. And um, but the the NVA were not they were not going to give up easy. I mean, I, I can't imagine what was going through their commanders minds uh, that three of their their own people taken in their own backyard. Uh, so they they were relentless. They would not no matter how much we put down, they would not they would not back down. They just they just kept coming forward. Uh, we, we did get the team out. We got the, uh, the three POWs out. One of the POWs was um, as hardcore as you could imagine. Um, he kept trying to throw himself out of the helicopter as, as opposed to being taken. Um, uh, ultimately, Lieutenant Ward smacked him in the back of the head with the butt <laughs> of his survival knife and knocked them out. Well, then everything went quiet, you know. Uh, I mean, we could see commotion going on in the slick, and it's like, 
Well, really? What the hell's going on? I mean, so he <laughs> got on the ground. Um, they separated the, the three POWs, and they had the hardcore guy. Lieutenant Stilwell, Lieutenant General Stilwell. Oh, sure. Was on site. We didn't know at the time uh, when we were going out, but he and Major Sincere were monitoring everything that was going on on the mission. Whoa. When we got back, um, and uh, Major General, or uh, Lieutenant General Stilwell, and Major Sincere and a couple others uh, wanted to see the POW. So the, the POW was standing there hardcore. I, it just, I, I don't know if he was an officer, uh, an enlisted man, but he was hard. This guy was tough. <laughs> he's standing there and being asked some questions by an interpreter, and he's not, he's not budging. Right. The crazy Chinese cook right. from Mylock, <laughs> who really was a wild man, somebody, somebody put him up to putting on a show. He came running over screaming in Vietnamese something. Yeah. Screaming and yelling and waving his his meat cleaver and it was grabbed, you know, conveniently grabbed before he reached the the prisoner and was screaming at him and screaming at him and apparently what he was saying was something to the effect that the North Vietnamese had wiped out his family and he was he was bound to kill this man. <laughs> so uh, anyway, as this is going on, all of a sudden, this hardcore NVA starts to starts to wobble. move, starts to wobble, and drops like a rock. His his <laughs> skin went pale and he dropped like a rock. <laughs> Lieutenant Ward, <laughs> Lieutenant oh. Ward, told me he thought he killed him. <laughs> and that he died right in front of the general because <laughs> we knocked him out, right? Yeah, because he yeah. knocked him out. Well, apparently, <laughs> apparently he had a bad concussion, and uh, uh, you know they shipped him off to uh, to Saigon with the others, and I, I don't know what went on from there. But they, <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was quite an event. That was quite quite an event. So then, uh, around the November seventh, uh, was this when we had the mirror story? Yes. And then, yes. is this where we heard the click? Yes. All right. Yes. Because, uh, again, here, uh, you get the prairie fire emergency, the team's in distress, mm -hmm. and as you're going out, set up that scenario a little bit because this is uh, another indicator of the team on the ground, and mm -hmm. there's a couple unique circumstances that's better for you to describe, or I can turn to your well-written book if okay. you like. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, we had... Dropped the team off, Lieutenant Ward. Uh, this is only uh, this is only a couple of weeks after the POW, uh, where Lieutenant Ward had been wounded uh, during that POW thing. Oh, I forgot about that. Right. Yeah, he had been wounded, but he's back. He's back in the field. Uh, it's two weeks later. Uh, we dropped him off. It was in a in a very very far northern. Uh, Northwestern Target. Uh, yeah, Northwestern Target uh, in Laos, uh, way at the extent of our, our reach uh, with, with fuel. We dropped them off. We were on our way back. We hadn't even returned to Mylock when he called a prairie fire emergency, when Lieutenant Ward called a right. prairie fire emergency. We couldn't turn around and go back. We didn't have enough fuel. We had to refuel and then go back, uh, which, which again seemed 
painfully, painfully oh. slow. I mean, he was in he was in a real bad situation. And as we're uh, making our way back, um, we lost contact. Covey lost contact with Lieutenant Ward, not knowing if the team had been wiped out. Yeah, we don't know. We're trying to raise the team. Covey's trying to raise the team. We're not getting anything. We know we're in the area where we dropped them off, and they were basically in the same area. They, they weren't able to get anywhere. Um, all of a sudden, it was noticed that there was a clicking coming across the radio. Yeah, which would, he would be carrying the uh, PRC-25, right. which was FM. And one of the things that we did for comma check, instead of you mm-hmm. had to squeeze it to speak, and if you didn't speak, at least the people on the receiving end would hear the click of the receiver and the sp- getting ready to speak. So he, the Covey rider, heard the click, which meant yes. somebody's on the radio. The question is, who is doing it? The question is, who is doing it and where are they? Oh, that too. That too. That could be a challenge. So we knew <laughs> we knew somebody had the radio. Yeah. And, and we're assuming that it's, that it's Lieutenant Ward. But he's not talking. And we're looking around. We're trying to find a team. Uh, we don't have a lot of fuel. Um, all of a sudden, we spot a flash and another flash and another flash. And sure enough, we went to the where the flash was coming from. And here in a bomb crater is Lieutenant Ward. Flashing the laying on his stomach, flashing the mirror mirror at you guys at us. Whoa! <laughs> but that was the big link. That was the big link. And that then was, you found out that he couldn't talk because there were so many enemy troops nearby. They were right in front of him. I mean, they were they were literally just in a front few of the feet, bomb crater. In front of the bomb crater, they were only a few feet away. And you're able to see that from the air. Oh yeah. Oh my God. So they were so close. Um, we didn't. I didn't have the obviously didn't have the hog ship anymore. I had a conventional um, gunship with mini right. guns and mm-hmm. rockets. Mini uh, guns, mini guns and rockets. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They were too. The NVA were too close to Ward for us to use the rockets. They were too close to even you know fire up the mini gun. I mean, they were just feet away, but they didn't know Ward was there. Wow. But they were feet away, and sure. there were a lot of them. And they were hunting for them. And they are hunting. They are moving. They're, so um, we, we told uh, Lieutenant Ward that we're going to come in uh, right as close as we can with door guns um, because he's, they're too close to use anything else. And we will um, start the rockets a little further back and— the mini guns a little further back, but the door guns are gonna are gonna um, be really close. Yeah, <laughs> you and Scott yeah. would be the primary firepower yeah. there, and and we were very comfortable with that because I mean obviously we had a lot of experience and and we could we could clearly see Lieutenant Ward and his team, and we could see the NBA well, right me, in front. Let me take you to a well written book. Okay, there's a paragraph here mm-hmm. that really so well captures that. Because this is November, you've been in country now 11 months, mm-hmm. and the experience that Mr. Whitman, your pilot, Scott, your fellow door gunner, and I had developed as a team over the last months was going to play a major role in the next few minutes. 
If we were all able to do our part without a hitch, we might just be able to get our team out of this mess. And again, it's our team. Mm. Your language is just right on. Mr. Whitman would need to hold our gunship steady while he fired the rockets and not make a single flinch on the flight controls, no matter what the NVA was going to be throwing up at us. If he flinched, or if Scott or I misjudged our machine gun fire's reverse lead on our target, we would certainly wipe out our own men with friendly fire. This just could not happen. The next few moments were going to decide their fate. I had no doubt about Mr. Whitman staying rock steady while we were being shot at. We already had successfully completed dozens of extractions, most while under heavy NVA fire. He had never flinched before, and I knew he wouldn't flinch now. Wow. And the NVA is like feet away from feet. Lieutenant Ward, and he doesn't even know they're there. Feet. Well, you told him. About it. Well, he knew so they were. Be advised. He, he knew. Yeah. He knew they were close. <laughs> they didn't know he was there. And so, um, you're able to extract him. We were. Oh, my we God. did. Uh, later, uh, years later, at Soar, uh, Lieutenant Ward told me that from that day, he had never ever received friendly fire that close to him when it was <laughs> that decisively that decisively he said it was less than 15 feet really Man. it was less than 15 feet that's saying something <laughs> yeah so but it was good it, but if you know it felt good i mean it, you know oh yeah you know the highs are are as you know i mean the highs are unbelievable and and it gets to be Somewhat of a uh, uh, so, somewhat of a drug. Type, oh, absolutely! You know, uh, to to be successful, to know you did your job. You know, in your case, day after day day under after heavy day. enemy fire. How many times do you have to patch up <laughs> your warbirds? I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> he lost count. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't. I, I couldn't. I couldn't guess. I couldn't guess. So at some point, it comes to your end of your tour of duty. Yep. You go back. So um, you close out 68, um, go back, and then uh, how much longer were you in before you processed out, before you get to February 1st, 1969? Here's, here's the which deal. Which was that big day. When I, re- when I returned yeah. from Vietnam, uh, I, I was processed at Fort Dix. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. In in the army's infinite wisdom, I mean, they took me out of combat, and a matter of hours later, told me they're going to give me an early out, and I'm no longer in the military, and just turned me loose. Wow! And that, at the time, seemed like a good thing, but it was not a good thing. There was no <laughs> decompression, none, zero. Yeah. I mean, I I talk about it in the book about. One of my darkest moments in my life was standing there waiting to be picked up, not being a soldier, not being a civilian, you know. The twilight zone. 
between. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. That was bad. That was really, really, really bad. Wow. You know. And so where'd you go from Fort Dix? You head north back to Connecticut? Yes. Yes. Uh, my family picked me up at Fort Dix, went back to Connecticut. Um, and Barbara was still waiting for yeah, you. Yeah. And, and Barbara was still, duty, still, your still waiting your for Your sweetheart. Yes, absolutely. And, your wife uh, today. And my wife today. After Indeed. now, it's 53 years. Yeah. And February 1st was the day you all decided to make it legal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> February 1st. Got home, you know, December 1st, November yeah. 3rd. Um, yeah, got in, got engaged Christmas Eve. Oh, sweet! And then and got married February first. Yeah, that was the best thing I ever did in my life. That saved my life. <laughs> well, we married up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so after you're married, then what happens? Where how do you the next fifty years? You, you come across a few professions, and then yeah. what? Well, I I had to first after signing the non disclosures. Yeah, yeah. Um, I couldn't talk to anybody. Yeah. There was nobody uh, in the region that I um, that I served with. Um, so the environment at that time in 1969 um, was not good for veterans, as you know. Oh yeah, Vietnam vets. I basically went underground. I had worked with people for 20 years that never knew I even served. <laughs> so indeed uh, it it wasn't it wasn't good i mean i had some nasty remarks early early on um that i had to absorb and um so it was better that nobody knew uh, and it got to the point that uh, about sog that even my family didn't know uh, barbara knew some my two adult sons knew nothing. Wow. And um, sometime in the 90s, uh, with the encouragement of my wife, Barbara, I took some of my awards out and had them framed. And that's the first time that my adult sons saw them. Wow, really? So that would be your distinguished flying cross, your bronze star, and you still didn't have the Purple Heart yet, right? Or did, no, no, you I got did that not. Mucho later. Uh, I got it much later on <laughs> on the weekend of July fourth, two thousand and one. Right. I received a package, a Manila envelope, partially torn open. Of course. <laughs> um, just said Department of the Army or something. I said, well, what the hell is this? Yeah. So I, I was sitting on our, <clears throat> we were sitting on our deck, and I opened it up, and I pulled out a certificate for the Purple Heart. From September of 68. Yeah, from September 28, <laughs> 1968. <laughs> and, the, and the medal. It came unannounced, unceremoniously. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and... Uh, and almost didn't make it because it could have, if the package ripped another half inch, the metal, the case would have, it would popped have out. popped out. Oh, my God. So, yeah, all those years later, after after SOG was declassified, somehow, <laughs> somebody say, hey, look what we have here. <laughs> and then at some point you learned about the Special Operations Association I around did. 2010, 2011? Early very early 2011, um, I received a call from Scott, the Armin. I had not spoken to Scott 
with Scott and we since 1968. Scott, so just to, not to confuse him with your door gunner, but he is my door gunner. Okay, Scott is is who was my door gunner through that whole my, time. My okay. well, not the whole time. Uh, I lost the first two, but um, uh, Scott, I hadn't spoken to him all those years. It was late in the evening on a phone call. I had just gone to bed, and on the other end, somebody said, "Is this Roger Lockshear who served with the 101st Airborne?" Red flags. Oh, of course, yeah. You know, I said, uh, "Who's calling?" And he said, "This is Scott, Scott the Armin." And I could have, <laughs> you could have knocked me over with a feather. Um. And so, one thing led to another. He said, "Hey, there's some guys from SF from back in the day that are looking for you and looking for us from uh, from the events of September 28th." I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, um, someone's going to call you, and his name is Crawford. <laughs> I said, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. The same I mean, because I knew, yeah. you know. For time in the McGuire rig. Yeah, well, not only that, there were other things. <laughs> other you know? things, of course. Yeah. And um, so, make a long story short, Crawford called me. And in his typical typical fashion, within five minutes, he said, uh, I need you to send me your social security number. <laughs> I said, why? And he said, well, the senator from Florida is um, working to assist us in, in uh, getting some overdue awards and whatnot. <laughs> so uh, with that, he said that we want you to join us at Special Operations. Association, yeah. At Association. <clears throat> so um, uh, fast forward to uh, to Special Operations uh, Reunion, Association Reunion in the fall, um, where I was surprised and presented with the uh, DFC, with this Distinguished Flying Cross, uh, for September 28th. And uh, Bronze Star for uh, my service with Mylock. Um, and that's that was now my validation of what <laughs> I did. I now had people in my life that can, could confirm right. that I actually served there and wow and ran and that's that's really what got wheels rolling i mean i, I had attempted to to start a book years ago uh couldn't I, I just couldn't do it right um so with uh with that things really started to come together uh i wanted to i remember that reunion when you yes. the first time you came we were talking with dickie yes uh john smith was there yes and of course then tim Schaff. yes Tim, and, and Mike Armstrong and Mike was there. That's Mike right. was there. Mike Armstrong was yeah. there also. Yeah, um, that was a, like a magical. Homecoming. That was a magical uh, time oh, for, for me, and, sure. and still is each year. Uh, magical. Uh, you were president at the time oh, that's right. for the association. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of days ago. Yeah. Uh, so th that that really brought things together. That brought a lot of things together. It brought the validation uh, that I could tell my story and not have somebody roll their eyes and say, yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Sure. You know, I had met over the years a lot of wannabes, oh. as we all have. Sure. A lot of BS artists. Um, 
and I, I was always afraid to be pegged in that light should I share in any way, you know, what, what we were doing. So um, now there's validation. And, and now your sons know. Now, and, and, you know, so I started writing the book with the intention of just not writing a book, but putting things to paper so that my sons would know. Sure. And, and my grandkids would know. And I wanted then um, people like yourself, Dennis Cummings, um, encouraged that I should really write a book. And that led to? Uh, and that led to the book. We Save Sog Souls, which I highly recommend that if not today, tomorrow, run out <laughs> and buy two or three from Amazon and get some to your family members to uh, talk further about your time there. Yeah. Because it's such a side of the Sog story that's, that hasn't been told enough, but this one provides on-the-ground experience as well as in-the-air yes, experience for yes, it does. your crew, and et cetera. So um, what else did you do as a civilian, just to have a little quick for your time Well, after you got out? You worked, had I was, a low profile, became a highly trained professional doing... Yes. I, I, <laughs> I started off as a, um, a, a tool maker mm-hmm. of, to, of such, yeah. uh, actually injection mold maker. Um did that for a while, then got into designing for injection molds, then got into management um, for new product development. I worked for companies like BIC Corporation, who make the pens. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I got involved with them, set up a department with them for new product development. Uh, worked with Black & Decker for many years as a uh, manager in new product development. Um, and uh, then retired. <laughs> <laughs> what year? I oh gosh, I retired in two thousand and let me think. Uh, Is that to, long ago? Yeah, it, it's been it's been about thirteen years, I think, since I re- I t- retired early. Yeah, and why not? If you can, I retired at sixty two. Okay, and my only regret is that I didn't retire sooner. <laughs> it's highly recommended. Just having so much fun in Connecticut. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's it. Well, and then as part of that retirement, yesterday is one of those days where you had a chance. I just got to say, because at one point in 68, they renamed the unit to the 160th. Was yes. that, does that carry over to today's 160th Night Stalkers, or is that just a happenstance? We're not sure. It could be happenstance. Um, yeah. Yes. In, in uh, 1968, um, my unit, D, D Company, 101st Aviation, uh, became part of the 160th Aviation Group. Right. Now... Um, Night Stalkers, the one today's Night Stalkers, today's Night Stalkers, which is the premier helicopter unit in the entire world, in the world, second to none. Yeah, um, and it, there, it's like a legacy. It, to, <laughs> to me, to me, it's like a, a a link. Sure, all the way back to my time. Uh, they do what we did. Yeah, you know, they work with with uh, very closely with the specialized ground units. Indeed. Um, which we did. They operate unconventionally, which they we do. did. 
And you did. <laughs> yeah. But in, in uh, reality, the 160th only came into being in 1981. That's when it, uh, when it officially came into being. So uh, my visit with them was so intense yesterday and, yeah. and such uh, uh, over, overwhelming uh, for me. Sure. I, I didn't have an opportunity to get into that to, to, to see how they can draw a line. Uh, I also noticed at Fort Campbell, there's a road named Angel's Way. Indeed. And <laughs> I, I'm, I can't help but wondering, where did that come from? Yeah. Because all the roads, streets, most in Fort Campbell have an association, you know. Well, you got Ashaw. a project to work on now to figure out where these names came from. Well, I, I find it <laughs> I find it interesting that uh, Black Angels oh, or yeah. gunships, sure, in name, lived for only a few months, only lived from December until uh, July, August. And, and again, on the back page, anybody's curious, there there's a picture of Roger with his Black Angel before it was blown up and destroyed <laughs> yeah. in Laos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so interesting. It's it's a interesting. but that lineage, the, the fact lineage, that just yeah. happens today, and they they've continued to stand on your shoulders and raise the bar from your day. It, it seems like it. Oh, I yeah. mean, it it just it just seems. I felt so proud of that they are what they are. I I I, I can't express and the way they own the night, the way they own it, the way they operate. I mean, it just everything just is so familiar. It, <laughs> you know. Just, well, that was outstanding. You're able to do that. That was great. So, any uh, we're at that point in time, sir. Any final closing thoughts on um, either from Vietnam or the last uh, 54 years since uh, leaving Vietnam for the last time? Well, I'm glad to see that today veterans are treated with the respect that they so deserve. Indeed. Um, um, uh, nothing can make up for what we, you and I, and others um, dealt with when when we return. Um, I, I, I just I'm just very very grateful that I had the opportunity to serve with SOG. Um, not to not to take away from anything of today's warriors, but to me, at that point in time. Uh, the SOG warriors were the, the best the world had, had ever seen. And, and I, I was just so honored and privileged to, to be a small part of that, uh, to be included with that. And all the recon teams and Hatchet Force men that you saved, they were really glad you guys were there, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> it's a mutual admiration society. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so with that, any, any last thoughts other than that? If not, we'll... At that point, where I think we're I think we're good. I really appreciate this. Absolutely. Well, it's our pleasure. So, um, again, we want to uh, take this opportunity to thank all the men and women in our armed service who have fought and bled for the country. And again, we want to thank Jocko Willink for sponsoring the SOG interviews, productions, and flight costs. As always, we thank the men and women who serve in our army today, in our armed services, our first responders. The um, particularly the border patrol, under the unique circumstances that they're coming up against along our border, and we want to take the opportunity to thank men like Roger, who has served our country with valor, the years past, 
and we also remember and salute the men and women who did not return. As of today, we still have 1,584 Americans that are listed as missing in action in Southeast Asia from the Vietnam War, including 50 Green Berets from the Secret War, and we've now documented 83 aviators, helicopter pilots, fast movers, sky raiders, who uh, died in support of SOG teams on the ground. So with that, we'll close out. God bless America. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. We're at that part of the show where we come back and talk about our guest today from SOGCast number 026, Roger Lockshear, crew chief for the 101st Airborne during the highest casualty year, one of the most intense years in SOG history, during the eight-year secret war fought across the fence. So I'm joined by our top secret uh, technician, Tom. And uh, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank and, you. And uh, what do you think of our crew chief? You know, <laughs> I think I say it every time I come here. Every <laughs> e- every time we do one of these, I uh, say this and I'm like, uh, I, yeah, I don't, words can't express because it's just like all you guys, everyone that served in, in that war, you know, heroes, but it's like when you hear these up close and personal stories and you start listening to the details that he did us a good job in his book. He did a great job. Oh, yeah. But there's a difference between reading it out of a book and then hearing it come out of his mouth. Oh. It's just, it, it, <laughs> it, you can't, it, it's just like, oh, my God. Yeah, but, uh, when I read that part, that one chapter where there, Pat Watkins goes, your helicopter's on fire. <laughs> and I go, yeah, looked out, sure it was. And what did he do? He went back to firing at the, uh, supporting the team. He and Scott both. Yeah, why not? I mean, that's, <sighs> that, that's dedication. You don't, you don't see that in, I'll say, you don't see that in normal people. No. They're not normal. None of, <laughs> none of us are normal that do that. You know, the guy that when you hear the gunshots and you run towards it, that's not normal. No. You know, or you're on fire and you're like, yeah, it'll buff out. I'm busy killing communists right now <laughs> exactly. who are trying to kill their recon team on the ground. <laughs> but the fact that he told that, uh, the slick that if you don't get in there, I'm going to shoot you down myself. It's like, Wow. Yeah. I guarantee he went back in because he's like, well, I got one of two choices. I get shot down by them or I get shot down by him. And Mr. Whitman was former SF before he became an aviator, extraordinarily aviator on top of it. And that happens. What a team. Yeah. I mean, but that's that's actually, if you think about it, it's a good transition, right? Because you've been the guy on the ground. Now you're a guy in the air looking at kind of like Kobe, right? Yeah. Like Kobe Ryder. You were the guy on the ground. Now you're a guy in the air and you understand what that team's going to do. And you understand how they're going to react. And you probably have a little bit of insight on what you should do to counter or help that team. But uh, I think I think aviators get a little bit of a, you know, they don't get enough attention. Oh, clearly. And it's good that you brought them in here because I think they do do some really good things that don't get recognized. Because it's, you know, people write books. They're usually the guys on the ground. And it's not those guys. They don't write them but they've done some amazing things that are probably hard to articulate in a book and make it sound interesting. But there's a lot of little things they do that saved lives and well, still do. And and like it might be true in your case because you used air assets on your deployments in Iraq mm-hmm. and Afghanistan, and we use them all the time, but there are things we don't think about. Mm-hmm. It's like 
You call for the assets, pick us up. We're under enemy fire right now. Yeah. And you jump in and go. Yeah. If And then, you know, we might get shot down. We may not. And But you know what that feeling is. Right. But from their side, the little details, like how they approached an LZ, putting a team in, and then how they would go in with the slick. Yep. Providing fire support like that on each side. And then how to crash it gently. <laughs> yeah, all the rotation, just enough to knock how you to, up, but not enough to kill you. How to land it. Uh, I forget who it was, the one that, um, it was in your, was it on the ground? Um, that they talked about cra- uh, setting down the on the bank of the river, decided he was going to land it in the river oh, because right. it was softer. Yeah, for Sog Chronicles. Yeah, Sog Chronicles. That's what I, yeah, after they came out of yep. uh, Operation Tailwind. Yeah, and they came. And they never had any training on that. Was a CH fifty three, which is a monster helicopter. They never trained on doing a uh, auto rotation and, full of troops who, yeah. and weapons and crashing into the river and crashing into a river. It was yeah. it was softer. Yeah. <laughs> Lord have mercy. But yeah, I mean the the thought um, you know riding on um, on these birds, it's it's amazing. But I, you know, like we were talking before, that one pilot, and I hope he's listening to these and gets this because he'll remember who he is because he. Lives in the uh, Fort Benning area, but he, uh, he, what he said is, pilots nowadays are not real pilots. You're not a true pilot till you strap a map to your leg, a compass in your hand, uh-huh. and fly by the by the you know skimming the trees. Yeah, He's like, map now, the earth. Yeah, nowadays all you do is put in your location; and it does it for you. So it was kind of funny that he'd say that. I don't think that's completely true, and I'm sure there's some <laughs> pilots who will listen to this who are current pilots and be like that's not how it is that's fine that's just one man's impression of it so Indeed. it was just funny when he told me that because oh, like, yeah. no that's how you fly he's like and you're hoping it and yeah. it's also how how do those helicopters took off like 60s you know the uh1s like oh. the hueys like he told me i'm like i don't know how these things take off he's like they beat air into submission <laughs> and they fly <laughs> well in his case he had the charlie model yeah. of the ue but the bravo models they didn't have the power that the Charlies had. Yeah, and I, I, we distinctly remember like the the guys from the muskets. They yep. they welded wheels up front, so if they had the nose, they could have oh, they the could wheels there to to slide along better <laughs> than just bouncing along with the skids. And even oh. the, the guys from Scarface had the same yeah. thing. Just well, trying to get those heavily loaded uh, gunships off the ground. That pig, you know what he had in there. It's yeah. like Jesus. <laughs> the ordnance. Yeah. Oh yeah. But. Hey, it was it was accurate, and you know it was like he said. You know, it's more of a spot. You could get into a specific spot, but you couldn't cover an area. And I'd forgotten the aspect of them standing on the skid. Yeah, if they're going in on a gun run, that's I mean, direct about, firepower. Yeah, you know, obviously you're probably monkey tailed in or strapped in, but at the same point you're still standing on a little right. pipe. And <laughs> and at one point I, I forgot to cover it with him, but in the book. At one point, he talks about after a gun run, he sat back down in his seat and he looked over at the floor and there was like multiple holes in the floor where rounds had come Come through. through. Never hit him. And there's daylight. It's like, yeah. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. Then they went and got three POWs out. Yeah. That's that's the first time I've actually heard, I think, anybody... That we've interviewed or that I've listened to in interviews, this is the first one where I've actually heard of someone actually getting POWs out. 
All I ever hear though is is <laughs> they they try, you know. Yeah. Troll had one and she jumped. She ran right out. <laughs> she ran right ran out. out of the king bee. <laughs> and well, obviously we won't get into Dick Thompson's history of POWs, <laughs> but you know we try, <laughs> continue to try. <laughs> well, we always had Dick Meadows who had thirteen. John yep. Plaster got a few, and uh, we can't go back with Linz. How he's going to get him out by using C4 right and then him demoing himself so he could test test it how close do I have to be to <laughs> knock somebody out and you do you're not supposed to do that on yourself <laughs> right <laughs> well again I'm glad Roger did it we hope other people will uh, come out with more stories along those lines definitely and uh, there are a couple of books that are finally surfacing on the 160th Night Night yeah. Stalkers tell you that are contemporary over the last 20 years yeah which are good books so um with that thought, sir, anything else? Uh, thank you for uh, working with us today again. No, no worries. Welcome We're doing back. well. So, and yeah. uh, with that thought, we'll close out. As always, we thank Jocko Willing Productions. And without him and his support from his staff, we wouldn't be here today. And um, as always, we thank our service members from all the military, our first responders, the Border Patrol, law enforcement, even the folks in the hospitals, then the e- ERs that are helping, uh, we salute all of them and uh, continue to keep up the good work. God bless America. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.